The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Conversations on the Restoration Radio Network, and the first episode of Season 4. And this is a show where we discuss various items of in everyday life, and it's great to be joined once again for this season by His Lordship Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio, as well as by Father Anthony Chicada, assistant pastor at uh, the same church. So, my Lord and Father, great to be back on the air with you, and welcome once again. With that, we can dive right into uh, our topic, which is another one that I think is going to be of great interest to Catholics. Uh, We're going to be covering some things that are very near and dear to the hearts of many trads uh, on the show today. We're talking about, uh, I mean, I've been thinking about this, calling it the ATF show after the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. We'll be discussing those three things as well as gambling. Um, But uh, before we uh, get into that, my lord... I know you always like to start us with a prayer, so perhaps I could invite you to do that, and then we can launch into it. Thank you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Amen. Our Lady of the Light, Spouse of the Holy Ghost, pray for us. Amen. Thank you, my Lord. So um, I thought the, the good place to start would be gambling. Um, gambling is probably okay. the, the lesser of the, the four evils, if we can call it that. Uh, <laughs> something that I, I don't think is held with as much reverence among trads as uh, the ATF, but is something interesting in its own right. And, uh, Mort, I know you did a fair bit of uh, research leading up to today's show to, into the development of church thought on that. Yes, it's very interesting, Nicholas, that um, St. Augustine, for example, says the devil invented gambling, and yet at the same time, gambling is not intrinsically evil. So, as as our audience would know from from listening to these shows as well as from their own Catholic uh, reading and information, for Catholics, it's always um, uh, there are always two points for any any discussion such as we're engaged in today. That is to say, we have to look at the principles, uh, the the Catholic principles, and um, based on reason, based on um, revelation, based on the, the the Church's magisterium, and then we have to look at the the prudence of it in practice. So, if, if we always keep that in mind, we as as Catholics will be as is only fitting, will be, will be clear thinkers. So what does St. Augustine mean when he says, the devil invented gambling? Um, in other words, because it can, it can lead to a life of sin. 
And it is, it is uh, something which, although in say is in, in itself is legitimate under, under certain conditions, nevertheless, it's susceptible to very easy abuse. Uh, it brings all of these sins in its wake. Greed, covetousness, addiction, self-indulgence, waste of, of, of one's money and time and goods, cheating. Um, it, it can easily become uh, addictive, truly a passion, and then, as with any addiction, it becomes very difficult to control. Uh, it can lead, in, in a word, to a life of sin. But the principle is this, that, that gambling is, is okay, it is permissible in moderation. So if we're okay, okay with that, then let's, let's do a definition that might be helpful. Gambling is, is defined as the staking of, of money on the, on the issue of a game of chance. And um, it's uh, in, in moral theology, it's uh, considered under the aspect of what's called aleatory contracts, in which gain or loss depend on an uncertain event. So, um, interesting. Strictly speaking, betting on a on a on a football match, say, is not is not gambling in that sense. Um, but gambling is something which uh, would depend on pure chance, the roll of the dice, for example. Now, for the, I, think, I think the heart of the Catholic morality for us is to say very simply, if you do it with small wagers for fun, so you're playing some whisk or um, poker or something, some game of cards, and you just add a little zest, a little entertainment to the evening's activities, uh, you, 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 you play small bets, that's perfectly legitimate. There's nothing wrong or sinful with that at all. Um, as long as there's no excess and as long as there's no scandal. Those are two important Catholic principles, aren't they, Father? That the, uh, on, in moral theology, you're always going to come across either those two caveats or, or beware of either excess or scandal. Yeah, and uh, uh, that's really the key to understanding the principle here, the application of the principle. That uh, if if uh, there's uh, if there's balance and if there is uh, uh, moderation, and um, if, uh, if it's if it's uh, done for a sort of uh, an amusement, uh, small stakes are are perfectly fine. But when uh, it's it's when you end up in the land of of uh, excess, where you um, uh, say put. If we take an example, the uh, income or the resources of your family uh, in general uh, that are in danger, then uh, obviously you get into the uh, the area of excess, where so where it's, it's, it becomes something more. So if you were to go into a casino or, or, or participate in, say, a gambling game at some local Novus Ordo church festival, you would have to... It would, in the name of prudence, you would have to say, "All right, I've got I've got twenty dollars here. I'm, I'm allotting it for this evening's or today's entertainment. I'll, I'll play this, but no more." Something like that would probably be prudent, right, Father? Oh, sure. Uh, the difficulty is, of course, when you get beyond it, and when it does become uh, sort of an obsession uh, with yes. you, or, or an obsession and a compulsion. And, uh, you know, I myself have uh, seen that sometimes in, in uh, people who become fascinated by gambling, by going to the casinos, and uh, yes. with this, this uh, uh, idea that they have to, uh, 
they uh, have to bet, this gives them a, a thrill. Then there's the idea of winning back the money that you've lost. And uh, you end up turning in on yourself, and you end up doing an awful lot of harm. And uh, uh, it becomes a a, a, a source of danger for your family and a source of obsession for yourself. When I think of moderation, and Lord, you're suggesting $20 as an example, it seems to me that it's almost impossible, or at least extremely difficult, to partake of one's gambling at a modern casino because the one time I went to a casino I did that and my $20 lasted about five minutes I thought okay well you know I could have used the $20 on on a decent meal and had a lot more fun with my friends (laughs) than that I guess lesson learned right Nicholas (laughs) sure I, I think speaking of casinos though I think that um, while well, 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 we're saying here gambling is not wrong, the building of casinos is cynically wrong, particularly when engaged in by the state. Uh, and I'm talking specifically of examples of many states in the United States, which the government almost cynically builds or, or cooperates in the building of these, uh, these, these uh, gambling casinos in areas of, of poverty where the people are poor and they're ill-educated. And maybe they're living on the dole. They get money from the government anyway. And so the government recoups the money by means of the building of these, these large, obscene casinos. Um, I think of Detroit. I think of um, uh, the Cincinnati general area. Uh, Louisiana, in particular, with its uh, with its gambling tradition, you know, they have they have uh, betting machines in, in gas stations. They're 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 ubiquitous in in the state, and all of that preys upon the poor people and the ignorant people, and and encourages every every kind of excess. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's exactly it, and um, uh, that's something we we uh, have to keep. Uh, have to keep in mind if you want a, a distinction between a sort of a small-time gambling that uh, one would engage in with uh, uh, cards or yes. Uh, yes. Uh, whatever, a little bit of sports betting, and then uh, the industrial level of uh, casinos and so on was really something that when the books on moral theology were written, that uh, really didn't uh, exist except in a uh, in a very few places, and so the principles the moral theologians, yeah, yeah, the moral yeah. so the principles the moral theologians uh, laid down uh, always tended to be for something uh, something quite a bit smaller, but uh, the use of these things in a predatory way by the government to mm. in effect to encourage a, a passion. Uh, and to encourage excess, and to, uh, in effect, in the long term, to encourage sin is something that's very terrible. Right. So, so Nicholas, uh, how much would you a- estimate uh, someone would need uh, to to have a proper visit to a cas- to a casino? Well, I mean that that's hard to say. I only went the one time, but mm-hmm. um, I mean there's other factors to be considered. Some of the casino games. Actually, if you have a bit of skill, you can m- maybe do better. Like blackjack, I think there can be some mm-hmm. strategy involved of when to oh, okay. place your bets, or you know, versus the slot machines, you just feed that thing money and pull the handle, and it's complete chance. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I don't know. I would, I would think you'd have to go in with 
over a hundred dollars to to uh, last well, any amount sure. of time. Well, I, I mean, One, the people people that I talked with about this uh, would uh, talk about you know losing two hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars, and okay. you know that's a lot of money. You'd have to say that's that's just obscene, and yeah. uh, you know obviously to have that money set aside for recreation is perfectly legitimate for all sorts of good recreational purposes. But I I think every 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 thinking Catholic would say, oh that's that that is in and of itself excessive, to, to especially to spend it in such a place on and on such an activity. What kind of recreational value are you, are you going to derive from that? That's not a game of cards among friends in the evening. Yeah, right. it's, it's, it's uh, quite, quite different. You, you see, the um, uh, in the pre-Vatican II Church, you had uh, uh, gambling type of fundraisers. You had we had uh, uh, you know casino nights, etc. But the idea was that the, the profits from it uh, went to charity. You could it was an inducement. You could theoretically win some money, and some people did. But um, the uh, idea behind it was that uh, the profits went to uh, a good cause, yes. and, and the stakes yes. were basically small. Or uh, many churches uh, had uh, bingo. My, my father's uh, parish church in the hometown of, of uh, Calumet, Michigan, uh, had uh, a bingo, uh, and uh, they had a very good attendance at it. I remember going as a kid. And in fact, to ensure that, that it was honest, the pastor himself used to call the numbers. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that that was something that, you know, I guess was in the fine print of the ordination right for that diocese. But um, uh, it was a way of raising a little bit of money. But again, it was, mm-hmm. was small stakes, and you didn't lose uh, quite a bit of quite a bit. Right. So, um, Lord, what would you th- what would you think of uh, someone who's uh, is good enough at these things? I know, for example, some people can get very skilled at poker. Uh, you know, poker mm-hmm. involves a lot more strategy with bluffing and uh, things like that. So, it's, it takes a bit away from the chance. There's some people that can actually make a living doing that. Is yes, that a yes. acceptable way of Making a living? No, it's not an acceptable way of, of making a living because it exposes oneself to uh, the occasion of sin. Uh, for all all of the, the the examples that I gave just a moment ago, and it it makes you associate with the low the very lowest uh, elements of society, and um, therefore it ex- exposes exposes one to temptation, and and it would give scandal too. I think. So no, that's no decent occupation for a Christian. But maybe you're right. you're taking money away too from people who shouldn't uh, be gambling in the first place. Yes, that's right. Oh, right. So maybe it might be it might be good here to give the the conditions for laicity. Um, first of all, in, the, the the principle is an interesting one. That is to say that it's not sinful to stake your property, your money, um, uh, just as it is not sinful to insure your property against risk, uh, or for, say, a totally unrelated question, but related, say, a Wall Street pra- trader, someone who makes his, money's, his money, his living, on futures trading. Well, that's really a form of, of gambling. That's, um, that's aleatory contracts once again. But just as you, you can insure your house against risks, so you're paying, you're, in effect, gambling that... Um, that this is somehow going to pay off for you. So that there is a connection between having 
uh, forms of insurance and and the uh, and 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 see casino going interesting. But in any case, let's let's do the conditions for lasciety. Um, as, as Father Chicada mentioned, you may only stake, you may only put up uh, what is yours. That is to say, a lawyer, for example, could not uh, gamble on his um, on his client's money, even with this idea. I'm I'm very good at blackjack, and I'm going to I'm going to increase this poor widow's money considerably. You just can't do that; it's immoral. And secondly, the money has to be at your own free disposal. It has to be recreational funds, not the 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 rent or the or the grocery budget for the month. That would be obviously very very sinful, grievously mortally sinful. Uh, secondly. Um, you have to be able to the, the the gambling is you have to act freely the the theologians say no compulsion involved they don't mean we would say when we say compulsion we mean you know in effect some sort of some form of an form of an addiction but what they mean by compulsion here is is to um is to speak about uh being forced somehow to gamble but i think the the question of that addiction would be good to bring up too thirdly there must be no cheating marked cards, that sort of thing. And probably there's a lot of cheating that goes on on every level of organized gambling. And then and then to so, so therefore willingly to or seriously to participate in, in the world of, of gambling that's that's uses cheating in effect. Well that would be wrong. And then fourthly, it has to be a question of um of equality. So if two really experienced poker players take on two kids, two novices, who think they know a thing or two, but they don't, and encourage them to have high stakes so that by the end of the evening, they've lost maybe hundreds of dollars, um, even though they haven't cheated. Nevertheless, uh, according to Catholic morality, that would be sinful and grievously sinful in this case. Well, uh, yeah, I think that, that lays, lays out. And would you agree with me that if if one wished to partake of gambling, uh, you would discourage the faithful from going to one of these in, industrial casinos uh, oh, by yes, saying having a card game among friends or a, a parish mm-hmm. bingo uh, thing for fundraisers, those would be acceptable. Parish bingo or, or one of these uh, church fundraiser things or some charitable charitable fundraiser. I'd, I'd, I'd rather you not give your money to a Novus Ordo parish that's having a blackjack mm-hmm. night. But uh, maybe for some, some, some kind of, that would that would certainly ease it, I would say. Uh, that would make it a little bit more legitimate. Last of all, just uh, just a closing note, maybe on gambling, Nicholas, is to say that um, while the the principle is that it's not forbidden, the Church has always forbidden it from the very early ages. Uh, what's called the the Canon of the Apostles in the first centuries uh, had a punishment laid a punishment of excommunication on the laity as well as the clergy who engaged in gambling and in the apostolic or post-apostolic times. Uh, there were penances that were imposed. See, uh, some pope, I think Pope St. Callistus uh, put a year's worth of penance for for that. But, um, uh, and, and the medieval theologian, St. Peter Blois, for example, says that dice is the mother of perjury, the mother of theft, and the mother of sacrilege. St. Charles Borromeo forbade the clergy from playing in games of chance, dice, that sort of thing. But he also forbade football and croquet, which is interesting, just to sort of mention it. Oh, someone who was really deaf on gambling of any form was um, St. Peter Damien, who was nobody's idea of having a good time. Once upon a time, he came across a bishop who was playing chess to pass the time while he was traveling. 
And St. Peter Damien read him the riot act and totally condemned him. <laughs> he said, you know, you're a, he said, well, it's a game of skill. It's not gambling. And, and he said, you're a bishop. You have no business doing that much less in public. You know, he, he was most strict. So there, there's that, there is that, uh, there, we'll see that in the question of, of absence, total absence. There is a certain stream of, uh, uh, particularly with the saints, some saints, but not all by any means. Uh, but uh, but we go back to the principle, in say, in and of itself, uh, uh, as long as the conditions are met, it's not sinful. Hmm. Although it sounds like you couldn't go far wrong by just avoiding it and looking for other forms of entertainment. Oh, absolutely, particularly because of the, the you might say, the, the two, two C's, the company and the compulsion. I would stay away from uh, uh, casinos, definitely. Right. Well, I think that's a good spot to switch gears and go over to alcohol, which is something I alluded to at the beginning. Alcohol is near and dear to the hearts of many treads. I mean, to the point that, frankly, I've seen lots of people, uh, I think I've heard this in conversation, but I've seen it posted online where some Catholics are almost saying that, you know, it's acceptable or good to be getting drunk, Um uh, maybe that's a kind of a starting point to talk about. I mean, mm-hmm. Catholics aren't teetotalers, obviously, when we consider our Lord's first public miracle. But, um, uh, Lord, perhaps you could lay for us the, the foundational principles from a Catholic perspective well, first, as first, regards alcohol. First of all, speaking of speaking of Catholics, Nicholas, and drinking, uh, it would be only proper to, to cite the, um, the famous little uh, verse of uh, Hilar Belloc. Uh, when, when there are the Catholics sun doth shine, there's music and laughter and good red wine. At least I've always found it so. Benedicamus Domino. <laughs> That's Hiller <laughs> Bellock's contribution to, to the question. Um, and, and truly, the, uh, the idea of a, a total abstinence is, um, from so many points of view, really un-Catholic or, or non-Catholic. But yet, the essence of Catholic drinking is... Uh, in context, it's conviviality in particular, and um, uh, a, a strict, uh, I have to say, Protestant uh, teetotaling or abstinence league approach, a scorched earth, is against human nature, and therefore it's against Catholicism, because grace builds on nature, and is, and is supremely un-Catholic. But yet at the same time, the idea of winking at, at getting drunk, why well, that could hardly be legitimate either, because as we say, we, we Catholics, we approach mor- moral issues. This is a moral issue, according to principles, and then, then according to prudence, do we apply the principles to a given, to a given case. So... Uh, there, there, it is. It is permitted to drink. It's, it's, a, it's not only permitted. Uh, the, the scripture says, "Vinumut letificet goromenis," in wine to rejoice the heart of man. So um, there, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a normal. It's a normal part of life. I, I think that um, it's, a, it's incumbent upon parents to introduce their children at an appropriate age to the idea of drinking as part, as part of a meal, as, as a normal part of a meal, as you still see in some formerly Catholic countries like Italy, France, or Spain, and not drinking as, as somehow a, a great wicked forbidden evil. When, when it's looked upon that way, then, um, then it leads to excess possibly in later life. Parents should train their children uh, at an early age to, for the purpose of drinking and, 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 and to be able to drink uh, 
as part of a meal in moderation or even great moderation. Um, so the, the, Catholic, the Catholic viewpoint is not all or nothing. You might say the Catholic viewpoint is out of a third way. It's not abstinence, and it's not drunkenness. Drunkenness is hardly Catholic either. Um, it's, it's, that's, drunkenness is in and of itself a mortal sin. There are certain conditions that excuse it. And obviously we have to talk about maybe in, in what does drunkenness actually consist. Um, oh, last of all, I wanted to say that uh, I, uh, I was surprised when I first started visiting Louisiana and saying Mass there many years ago. And Louisiana is southern, I'm talking about southern Louisiana with the Cajuns, that um, uh, their attitude towards drink was something I had never encountered before. That is to say that for them it was all or nothing, that you either practice abstinence and you are a virtuous person, or you were a good-for-nothing drunkard and you got drunk. And the purpose of the different festivals which they have, uh, which they had back then and now they've got a lot more, was essentially for people to do a lot of drinking over the course of a weekend and indeed to get drunk. And you see that in other Catholic cultures. Uh, we can only nod in passing at the question of Ireland and the Irish and, and drink. And uh, I think of Mexico, too. But the Germans, interesting, the Germans and the French, they, they present a totally different viewpoint of proper drinking in context of conviviality, a meal, family meal, a part of a normal part of, of, of daily life, and always done, almost always done, in moderation. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see what the data is for <clears throat> alcoholism in France and Germany, but just from a historical perspective, it, it seems to me that having that Catholic approach does lead to less danger of that excess, just when one considers the Middle Ages, in a lot of places the drinking water wasn't great, and uh, alcoholic drinks, wine, beer, and mead were uh, very commonly consumed. They're really the principal drinks, but you don't come across much mention in medieval literature of uh, drunkenness or alcoholism being a problem. Uh, The medieval preachers seem to have other targets in their sites as uh, social ills that they were observing and preaching against. So it, it seems that uh, there's great wisdom in the approach that uh, your Lordship is advocating of introducing children from an appropriate age to alcohol as you know, the, just something you have with a meal and something to be taken in moderation. Yes. It really makes a lot of sense because uh, if you... Uh, present it as the uh, big um, uh, forbidden thing uh, and uh, as uh, uh, something that, well, uh, you absolutely cannot uh, engage in now at this point. That's that's something that would be uh, very bad for you uh, to do. Then uh, it unfortunately presents a certain attraction to it. Is that that, um, uh, that drinking and then also the idea of drinking a lot is seen as something that's uh, that's adult and uh, grown up that you can indulge in at a certain age, whereas if um, you introduce kids to it gradually and you educate them properly about it, chances are you're not going to have as as um, as much of a uh, problem with it because they will have a, a balanced and a Catholic outlook toward it. Yes, and so that's um, 
it's, uh, it, it's interesting. We, we had a, we've had a couple of visitors here, uh, priest visitors over the last few months, Nicholas, both of whom have had the, the, the first name of Arnold. There's a Padre Arnoldo from Mexico and a Father Arnold from, uh, from Austria. And um, in, my, in my research for this, for this show, I've come across a saint from uh, 7th century France who is said actually to have preached against drinking water. That's interesting. Told his people not to do it. Don't touch this stuff, which almost sounds not French but Irish, I have to say. Don't touch this stuff. Because, um, because drinking water, historically, in many places, was uh, not only unsafe in, in and of itself, but that would lead to cholera, to dysentery, to, to, to illness, and to death very often. So very, very often the people simply didn't drink water because it wasn't safe to drink water. And he told people, to, and, and of course the church, as, as especially the, 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 the parish priest or the bishop, very often until modern times would take, take charge of all of these things. And he would tell his people, don't drink the water, drink the beer. And he, he is quoted as, with having said, from man's sweat in God's love, Beer came into the world. Now, I'm sure there are many in our audience that would heartily, heartily agree with that um, with that analysis. In fact, one of the early saints and um, Celtic saints, Saint David of Wales, uh, forbade his monks to drink beer, and it was an extraordinary thing because Saint Benedict himself, in his holy rule, allowed for the drinking of wine. He said, "Nowadays, people can't be persuaded not to, so we'll regulate it." And he, he prescribed a certain measure of wine for each monk to receive each day with his dinner. But uh, St. David was so strict for him, him and his, his Celtic monks, Welsh monks, that uh, he was known as St. David the Water Man because he, he <laughs> made his, monk, his monks drink only water. And that must have been truly for most people in most times, even if they had fresh, fresh safe drinking water, what, what, what an act of penance. That, that certainly would have been certainly would have been, but it is so much a part of life that even penitential orders didn't uh, didn't give up the drinking of wine either from health from health points of view something to drink that's safe health points of view because drinking is considered as such an aid to digestion and and as a way of um, of warding off or combating illness uh, that it was just it's just a, it was considered to be a normal way of life. If we try to have that attitude, I think we, we would be we, we would we would stay within the just mean, the just measure. That moderation is so much a part of Catholic life, thinking, and, and moral theology, of course. At what point, though, does one uh, reach the point of drunkenness, or like in terms of how much they're allowed to drink? Uh, are you allowed to drink enough that you're feeling a little bit of what they call that a bit of a buzz? Is the terminology used? Yeah, it, it, it depends on a question of prudence, Nicholas. It depends on many, many situations. I remember from moral theology class at Acone uh, a million years ago the, uh, the example that, well, if it was an occasion, there was some particular reason, say like a birthday celebration or a feast day or something, then uh, a little bit more than usual might be allowed so that there'd be sort of a mild buzz. Uh, mortal, mortal sin... It comes in when one loses one's reason. You can't, you can't function. You can't uh, remember what you did. You got sick as a result of it. You caused scandal to others. You said or did things that you would just never have done had you been sober. Those, those are some of the ways of determining if one has, um, has committed a mortal sin in the, in the matter. Do you remember anything else, Father Chicana? 
No, I think you pretty well covered it. That, that uh, I remember the business too about the uh, uh, you know the party or the occasion, but the mm-hmm. the different indicia that uh, you listed uh, those were. Uh, uh, the signs that uh, really you were into the uh, area of grave matter, something uh, something very serious, and it yes, could be and... uh, if if um, it caused you to lose your inhibitions to uh, a lesser extent, um, and, uh, to do uh, and you end up doing something slightly scandalous, uh, mm-hmm. then uh, it it uh, might not uh, come under the heading really of a grave sin and. That would depend kind of on your uh, kind of on your station in life uh, a little bit. It would be one thing for a uh, someone who was a uh, uh, let's say a regular factory worker. Another thing, the question of let's say a bishop, uh, mm-hmm. whether he was playing chess uh, or not. Right. <laughs> but I, I and there may be another uh, another consideration. Maybe not playing chess, but I think that, I mean there's something I see all the time from my line of work is driving a car when one's had alcohol because um, now I mean it's one of those things that some people get upset because it's perhaps taken to the extreme some might say by uh, certain lobbies but it is scientifically known certainly in my profession that you can be uh, well have drunk well under the point where you're losing your reason but still pose a danger to other people just because driving is something that you don't really think of this because you do it all the time, but it's something that does take a lot of hand-eye coordination and uh, yes. even a slight reduction in one's reaction time could result in danger. I'm sure uh, we can all oh, sure. think of times when there's been, you know, you think, whoa, that could have been an accident, but I was able to just hit the brakes or just swerve out of the way yes. just yes. in time, whereas if you'd been yes. drinking, you may not have had that reaction time and it could have caused a collision. So uh, I think that's something that, uh, Catholics shouldn't be um, casual about one because you couldn't endanger yes, yourself in terms of if you get caught by the police that could have huge uh, ramifications oh, yes. on your life having Absolutely. your license taken away having to pay fines etc but mm-hmm. I, from a Catholic perspective we don't want to be putting ourselves or other people in danger either and this was something that uh, the moralists uh, drinking and driving really didn't uh, Talk about because um, the uh, the idea of, of everyone having a car was something relatively recent. But um, uh, you know, uh, surely when you uh, apply the principle of, of uh, uh, danger, uh, the danger that an automobile uh, poses, this giant piece of machinery, uh, yeah. and uh, the speed at which you travel, uh, you know, it, it is. Um, uh, it can have very, very grave consequences if you, uh, if your uh, faculties are substantially diminished. Mm-hmm. So well, there's uh, something then, then to be said for the. Um, we joke sometimes about the, the the distinction of designated driver and designated drinker, but there's actually <laughs> something to be said for that when yeah. when when one is out and someone has to do the driving, because you have your life and the life of others. You have your good name. You have maybe your livelihood. All of those things are at stake. Uh, the the civil laws are extremely strict, and of course it's a matter of. Uh, well, talk. About, it's, a, it's a gamble. We're back to gambling again. You're, it's a roll of the dice as to whether or not something will happen, and you you might get stopped, and you could have terrible complications. So, in in all of these things, 
the idea of, uh, the, of, of the, the queen of the virtues, prudence, has to enter in here. Is it prudent for me to do so? Um, remember that the, the apostle says um, that all things, all, all things are, not, are not listed to me. They're not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but they're not listed in this particular case because of scandal or some, or, or some offense against potential offense against prudence. I do have to be careful. I have a responsibility to be careful and to be responsible. Well, I was going to just invite you to, uh, if you had any final comments before we start oh, talking. Oh, yes. Well, there, is, there are a couple of other things, uh, points I wanted to make on the, on the subject. One is that um, I remember our moral theology teacher, who was a, a canon of the great St. Bernard at Econ, the Chanoine René Berto, making the point that um, actually drinking uh, unto drunkenness is permitted in certain circumstances, particularly for the sake of one's health. I was just doing some reading on an alternative website recently about what that's, uh, and I don't want to encourage anybody to drink to excess, but the, uh, the, the, the writer was making uh, the point that, that uh, sometimes drinking, to the, at least to the point of tipsiness, can serve as a natural antibiotic. And I remember the Canon Berto telling of cases of people who avoided catching the, the flu during the post-World War I flu epidemic by getting drunk. And he almost had the impression, if I understood his French, getting drunk and sort of staying drunk for a while, which might be a little... <laughs> that would seem well, a I mean, excessive. it would be permissible for you to do it, to uh, uh, undergo an operation if you didn't have an anesthetic. Yes, that would be so, another example. Uh, you know, I, I guess uh, it was simply an application of the, it was a proportionate reason. And uh, proportionate reason, uh, that, yeah. you know, that, that, that was the... Um, uh, and that was his point, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It absolutely was his point. The, the other thing is that it's talking about the, the different nationalities. It is interesting. Uh, that's uh, the, the question of uh, one's attitude towards drink is, uh, is, a, is a large part of the history of the, the Catholic Church in the United States, for example. The, the wars between the different uh, immigrant groups, uh, power wars, in effect, and their cultural wars, and, and a lot of them, a lot of times, were fed by a lack of uh, a lack of sympathy or understanding. The Germans could not understand why the Irish could not hold their drink, why they could not drink in moderation, and they simply couldn't control themselves. And they they found it amusing, and they made fun of the Irish, and they had no sympathy for them. And the Irish, generally speaking, were teetotalers because um, the, the, their people, the bishops were, and many of the priests. Because their 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 people very often had the reputation and the reality of when they drank, uh, as poor ignorant classes will, they drank to excess. There was no idea of moderation because they didn't grow up with uh, with uh, in in their poverty. They never grew up knowing the pleasure of a, of a glass of beer or a glass of wine with a meal. No, if you drank, it was for some. It, you got a hold of the of of the creature, as they say, and you just and you just drank to get drunk. Um, and then the Irish then, the Irish church in America waged a, a great war against that. And we, we mentioned sometimes to the younger clergy that, um, that, the, that the young clergy in, I think, almost all dioceses of America, certainly many of them before the changes, were obliged to take what's called the pledge. They had to promise as, as part of a condition before ordination not to drink alcohol. Was it for three years, Father, or longer? Or? Five years. 
Five years, for five years after ordination. Uh, the, the, the former, remember the former rector of the Milwaukee Seminary uh, announcing that uh, uh, to a, a seminarian he was talking to at a first mass party, saying that, you know, you couldn't have a drink uh, in the old days like this because by, uh, you would have taken the pledge. Yes, and I wonder, if there's, I wonder if there's something there also about the type of alcohol that's consumed. Uh, I mean, because uh, in German culture it would mostly be beer, but it seems to me in be beer, yeah. Irish culture it would often be uh, whiskey or rye. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I've seen this again in my line of work as a criminal defense lawyer, is there's many, many people, and I, I've seen countless, examples of this of people that can drink wine or beer and they're fine but when they drink whiskey they that's when they have a complete personality change become this <laughs> angry violent person and, and it mm-hmm. seems like there's a lot of people that that's when that's where the big problems come so i, I don't know if there's something on a a chemical level that's different of uh alcohol distilled from different things but it seems whiskey is uh the really big one and uh i mean uh, it's interesting to me because corn is a uh, is a food that uh, I mean I almost wonder if it's a a bit of a food that uh, the devil wants people to uh, to have. I mean it, it really originated from Mexico and the Satanic Aztec uh, culture. It played a big role in their culture, and uh, you know and even nowadays the high fructose corn syrup it's a food that's really abused. For, for evil ends, that's and then true. when you see that's the way true. whiskey works, uh, I, I don't know, I wonder if there's something something almost supernatural at play there. Well, that's an interesting Stay theory. away from that popcorn. I, I think that's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very so, we, <laughs> so I think we we are at our third topic, right? Right. Uh, tobacco, no, which, which is uh, tobacco. Tobacco. another beloved item. Linked, linked together, aren't they, in, in sort of common anti-Catholic prejudice? Or, on the other hand, the way we would look at certain uh, certain sects or religions of, of, of the Protestants, it would be almost, uh, I'd say, the Pentecostals of the old days. They don't smoke, smoke and they don't drink, and, they, and then, of course, they don't dance either. But no smoking and no drinking for many, many a strict Baptist, for example, as well as, as, as parts of some of the other Protestant religions. And those strictures are just not present uh, for Catholicism historically, especially in the, in the use of tobacco, an interesting history. Of course, there's modern science and modern medicine that has a lot to contribute to the conversation now, as people would say. But historically speaking, there's 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 a real link you, between the use of tobacco and Catholic life and culture. Everybody did. Everybody smoked, um, even in in, in monasteries. There, 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 there was an allotment of cigarettes. You remember that, Father Chicano? Yeah, the, the um, in the Cistercians, the uh, rule for the, the congregation subdivision of the order said you could uh, had a choice of either getting a pack of cigarettes a day, or five cigars, or a packet of tobacco. So yes. there, this was actually considered part of um, a part of your normal existence. One of the other things I uh, remember as a kid is the um, uh, major seminarians. We would walk by the major seminary, and the 
major seminarians would be uh, walking down the drive having their morning cigarette after breakfast, and virtually everyone smoked in those days. Yes, uh, and it, it was it was not uh, considered to be something that was uh, sinful or uh, abnormal or uh, uh, anything like that. It was just it was considered a normal part of life. Well, and when I read literature that from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, it seemed it was a when someone would go to visit a like a lawyer's office or some other professional that this was a standard thing that to be hospitable, the the person whose office it was that was being visited would offer a cigar and a drink to his guest. Yes, oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, uh, you know, that still existed in the that still existed in the seventies. So it's 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 not that uh, it's not that that uh, far off that much in in uh, ancient history. Right. Whereas so now, the, the, Lord, you mentioned Protestant sects, but I mean, really, the secular liberals smoking oh, tobacco yes. is one of one of the only great sins that they have. Exactly. Well, obviously, burn, uh, burning uh, fossil fuel has got to be right up there. I think we're anticipating an encyclical from the Holy Father, if I'm not mistaken, on the topic. And I, th- and I think they leave, they leave cigarettes alone because so many laws have been passed, and because that's, of course, a liberal's approach to life, you know, pass a law. Uh, that that they consider that they won the won the, won the the game, but actually the statistics are up again for youth turning to smoking again. I think from a from a realistic point of view, you you considerably um, up your chance, increase your chances of, uh, of of cancer. You 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 contribute to the deterioration of your health by by smoking. And um, I remember a, a priest I knew once telling me that he didn't buy into all the liberal propaganda against tobacco use. But he didn't want to be a slave to anything, and so he gave up smoking. And that's a very good. That's a very good. Now that's a Catholic perspective. You don't want to be addicted to something, and by by its nature, particular, I think tobacco can be addictive, and those who want to have that that freedom would then move away from it. On the other hand, one of the justifying reasons for using something like this is 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 that uh, you know it does have some sort of a positive effect. And mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of relaxation or taste, and it certainly does. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. And I know that uh, I, when I smoked, and I smoked for many years, I found it uh, very, very relaxing. And uh, I found it uh, helpful when I was doing intellectual work when uh, I was writing. And the um, uh, I actually read a, a study on that phenomenon later uh, that made an association with between the uh, use of nicotine and um, the uh, uh, idea, the uh, uh, ability to concentrate, that it did in fact help your concentration, and the conclusion of was that uh, this is why one found so many writers and so many people in the press who were really uh, heavy smokers because of the uh, it, it helped or it increased their concentration, which is. Uh, Interesting, but you know we right. we know that from uh, a long term point of view, it is something that's uh, uh, that's harmful. If it would be possible to uh, use tobacco in uh, moderation, uh, then uh, a 
of course, there would be no problem with it, but uh, that's the key moderation. Yes. Do the uh, do the e-cigarettes contribute significantly? Does that make a difference? Do you think uh, for decreasing that the health the health uh, problems? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's as much research on them, but right. e-cigarettes, right. as far as I understand, they're just water vapor with nicotine in them. So, I mean, water vapor, right. I would think, fairly obviously, wouldn't wouldn't uh, impact you the same as these burning, you know, in, inhaling burnt tobacco and you know ash and smoke versus water vapor. No, but the liberals are trying to find a way to forbid it, of course, because it's, of course. it's uh, uh, you know, associated with something they don't like. But uh, so far, uh, what, from what I've read on the topic, the medical uh, evidence just isn't there unless you have a heart problem or something like that. Although... Up till up till up till modern times, I think we we need to, to say here that the favorite mode for the ingestion of tobacco was taking snuff, and and it's interesting to note from a Catholic perspective, everybody and I mean everybody took snuff uh, since since tobacco came from the New World in the 16th century, it became enormously popular. Even really 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 strict saints like uh, Saint Alphonsus Liguori not only wrote in favor of its use, for example, that it did not break the fast, Eucharistic fast or the natural or the or, or fasting day fast, uh, but they also he 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 used it himself personally, and then jollier saints such as it wouldn't surprise you say like I said like Philip Neri, he used he used snuff too. Great popes used snuff, Pius the Ninth, Leo the Thirteenth, Saint Pius the Tenth used snuff and smoked cigars, so Saint Bernadette against her asthma on the on the orders of her doctor, had her own little snuff box and scandalized the other nuns at recreation by using snuff. One nun told her, but sister, you'll never be canonized. <laughs> they find out that you're using snuff. And she smiled sweetly at her and says, oh, dear sister Chantal, they'll canonize you because you don't. <laughs> she, she had that cousin's wit about her. So um, everybody used snuff, and it was... Um, I, I remember the old Father Abbot in, in my Cistercian monastery, he was a Dutch, uh, using snuff uh, during the conventual mass and during the office, and his white robe, the, the, the collar kukula, was all stained with brown snuff down the front of it because he would take it during the services in church, the offices, and say, they say, they say a pious and ninth that he had to change his cassock several times a day because it was all white, of course, but it wasn't all white after he used snuff for a while because the snuff got all over the place. <laughs> right. So it, it seems, once again, uh, moderation. And I think... Uh, moderation. You, you can... Um, tobacco, if it's consumed in relatively small amounts, like it is considered by modern medicine to be not dangerous. I know for most health insurance plans, for example, they'll, you're considered a non-smoker if you have something like one or two cigars per month only. So, oh, yes. Interesting. Interesting. And I would think they would have their, their finger on all the data and you know all the, the risks associated. So if, if a life insurance company is willing to certify you as a non-smoker, that, that is probably a level that's uh, quite safe, just to give listeners mm -hmm. an idea. Yes. But uh, I think perhaps unless uh, Father and Lord, you had 
anything else you'd like to add would be we can move into firearms, which is another. Yes, why don't we? Oh, sure, firearms. Let's, let's get out the guns here. Get <laughs> yeah. out the cigarettes and get out the guns. <laughs> guns. Uh, again, we use the same, the same, the same viewpoint, uh, the same perspective of the principle. What is the principle? And then prudence, of course, in in the practice of it. Uh, the uh, the owning and the use of firearms is perfectly legitimate, chiefly for two purposes. That is to say for self-defense, and then for hunting. Um, the self-defense, we can we'll talk about that in a moment, I think, about sometimes it, it's permissible uh, and, and normal that one should have recourse to self-defense. And sometimes, actually, it's obligatory, and even obligatory under, under, under pain of serious sin for certain people to, to, to use any means necessary to defend oneself or, one, or one's charges uh, against the assault of the enemy. And then, Hunting uh, as legitimate recreation, but for some kind of a of a more than just a recreation purpose. I, I think the ideas of um, culling the herd or chiefly coming up with food, the, 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 those those are certainly legitimate uses. So guns, I think that uh, that uh, oh, this was a, this is a line from some sort of a Western novel. The same uh, Father Abbott who used to take snuff also used to love to read old Western novels, I remember, uh, from the 19th century when he couldn't sleep at night. And um, Shane, that's, this, is, this, this is a line from a cowboy in the, in the novel of Shane, uh, that a gun is no better or worse than any other tool. It is as good or as bad as the man who's using it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and that's the way I tend to look at firearms and now, I hesitate to say this a bit because I'm a Canadian, so people will probably think, oh, he's some gun-hating lefty, or certainly that's the reputation my country has. Although, mm. interestingly, I've seen statistics that per capita there's more firearms in Canada than the United States because lots of people out on the farm have firearms because they, mm-hmm. it's easy to go hunting out in the middle of nowhere and you need a firearm for if coyotes are harassing your, sure, your cattle sure. or things like that. But... I, uh, I'd be interested in your comments on, it seems that in the United States, there's almost an inordinate attachment to firearms, as if they're more than a tool. There's something special in and of themselves. They and, become a uh, symbol, don't this. they? Right. They're, 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 they're a symbol of one's independence. I think there's a, they're also a symbol for the, the common man to refuse the encroaching state the nanny state who wants to dictate everything to you and who wants to disarm you in the face, but the nanny state can't take care of crime. And so they want to disarm you at the, at the, at the same time as they are unable to protect you. And so there's something in, in, in human nature that revolts against that. So, so therefore, guns become a symbol, and, but as with anything else, one could take it to, to, to excess. Right. And I think the other problem is that in my experience of visiting the United States, is uh, I find that people tend to be very, very casual about firearms. Now, again, in Canada, mm-hmm. maybe it's a bit too extreme that people are terrified of firearms almost because of uh, the the propaganda up here, and people don't realize that it's just a tool, and if you treat it with respect, it's perfectly safe. Yeah. But I, I've right. seen the opposite extreme, where I'll walk into a friend's house in the United States, and Right beside his unlocked front door, there's a loaded handgun sitting on on the bookshelf right next to the door. 
that, oh, I've got to say that's know, imprudent. Even even giving it symbolic uh, a meaning, that that's got to be imprudent, especially if there are children right. around. But even in say it's imp- you never know. That's just right. That's well, someone could walk through that door and grab it, or I mean, you do see extreme cases like that lady in Idaho who was last week shot to death by her two-year-old because she had a loaded handgun. Yeah in her purse that she had in the shopping yeah. cart with the two-year-old, and she was looking yeah. at something on the shelf, and the two-year-old's fumbling around playing with the, the mm-hmm. handbag, and then the, mm-hmm. the handgun went off by accident. I think, uh, so that, that almost might lead us to the question of the conditions of, of gun ownership and the condition of license, licensing. Um, it, it's the same thing as what we, what we spoke earlier about drinking and driving. Uh, when you consider what it is to drive a car, that 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 that, that enormous piece of machinery that has the power to take lives, for one moment of inadvertence, and tragedy can occur. It's the same thing with guns. That that it, it's uh, probably it's remarkable that that more accidents like that do not occur, although there are enough in the course of a year, because um, people tend to be irresponsible, don't they? They they they, mm-hmm. they 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 tend they they tend not to well people tend not to be virtuous I guess something to do with original sin, and certainly something to do with uh, very very lax education and lax child rearing, which is endemic to all Western societies today. So people do not take these things seriously. And so obviously, if if one has a gun and goes about it the correct way and has a, the correct training to be able to use the tool properly. Same thing with driving a car. But there are certain people who just have no business driving a car. And there are certain people that have no business uh, uh, own, owning a gun or attempting to use it. And so in that sense, society has an interest in protecting the common good. So, And this is delicate, but there has to be some sort of licensing or control here, right? Well, Or at the very least, I would think from a Catholic perspective, it would be incumbent on a Catholic who wants to own firearms to properly educate themselves and be careful in the use of it, even if the state doesn't have any direct involvement in that. Sure, moral obligation, prudence, prudence here above all. Right. Sure, especially in the case of uh, someone, you know, who who does have children, uh, and uh, you you have to to protect them uh, and... uh, you know, from the, the the terrible harm that something like uh, a firearm could do to them. You know, if you are a uh, uh, if you're really into firearms and uh, you have them and use them, when a kid gets to a certain age, uh, then it is a, a uh, probably a good idea to teach him something about the safety of firearms. I know my father did that with me, and and that in, mm-hmm. instills a proper respect. For uh, uh, for these tools uh, with a kid, uh, yeah, it comes back a bit to what we were talking about the alcohol, doesn't it? About at a certain yes. age, showing children the proper use of alcohol as something with a meal, and the same could be applied with firearms if you have them to when they're at the right age, teach them how it how it works and to have proper respect for it that it's dangerous and. Uh, you know, rather than the forbidden thing, that, that could that may be part of why uh, many people that have farms are so attached to them, or they have these huge collections of alcohols and things that yeah. they don't really yeah. need, because it's this forbidden fruit that you know they're being yeah. naughty and going behind the nanny states back and uh, and having these things. I, I think the problem here is that um, 
it, it always takes you back to the family, doesn't it? The problem is that it's that what, what they would call today bad parenting. So many parents who are themselves children who have had no education or raising, rearing, proper child rearing. They don't know how to, rear, to raise children themselves. They have no discipline or self-control and no sense of responsibility. And so as a result of that, society collapses. And when society collapses, what do you have to do? You have to protect yourself and your family. How do you do that? Well, go to the gun store. But if you're going to do it, good. But be sure that you 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 know how to use the gun and, and you follow the, 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 the rules of safety and prudence. Right. And uh, I, I, there's something I've observed that I find a bit strange. I'd be interested in the in your perspective on this, maybe it's morally neutral, but it seems odd to me when I see, when I visit Americans in their house sometimes, not everyone, but I've definitely seen people where they're, they have a handgun in a hip holster, a shoulder holster, just while they're walking around the house playing with their children, cooking dinner. And oh, that's, that's crazy. Seems that's odd just, to that's me. It seems to me like it's like carrying that's a drill around with you or a hammer. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely excessive. And, uh, that's that's so that's just silliness. They, they need to be called out, and it's not only silly; it's 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 dangerous, and that's that's immature too, because of they've invested all the symbolism in it. And when you when you when you invest symbolism in, in those kinds of things, you're 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 buying into a false quote unquote conservatism, and it, that's sort of that's that's the world of Fox News and uh, Tea Partyism and all the rest of it. And Catholics have no interest in that. We don't live that way. That's not part right. of our. That's not part of our Catholic culture. And that that the, when people do that, they should be told they're being silly. They should, maybe they should grow up. Right. Because when you think but, again, I always go back to the Middle Ages. People didn't walk around wearing swords and carrying crossbows everywhere they went in the Middle Ages. Oh, they carried no. those things when they were actually going to war or if they're going out hunting, but not just walking yeah. around in their village well, not, or in, in town. No, in, indeed, not not for daily life. Um, it, it's it's another thing. When when out of the house to uh, to to have say if you got a in the United States you'd have to have a concealed weapons permit and and you carry it you carry it with you and so so that, so that and, and you know how to use it properly and, and everything is 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 properly secured and is safe so that they're they're because because often it is indeed an anarch an anarchical world in, in which we live today so that, that I think that can be a very a, a very prudent thing by those who are prudent themselves and, and grown up and responsible uh, about it. I, I read something today about um, that a, 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 a thief, a convicted thief uh, from prison told, uh, told someone that, um, well, if I knew that so-and-so had a gun, I would never have broken into his house. And he was sort of wishing out loud that that, that, that he and the other uh, uh, house thieves would have a way of knowing whether or not the house was armed, because then he would just stay away. And they say that um, that a, a real, obviously, the deterrence to to crime and violent crime is the thought that I'll be punished, not down down the line ad infinitum, but right away here and now the gun will come out and my life or my and my limbs are now at risk it's just not worth it i'll go someplace else so in that sense uh having a gun and being known for having a gun and being able to use it if that would be a positive that that would be a real a real deterrence i should think to to, to crime and to violence and that's just something that maybe that's a fact of, of modern life today that the people have to take those prudent steps 
to second that, that uh, uh, you have, that there's a great deal to be said for this idea of, of uh, uh, deterrence, because the state obviously can't protect you everywhere. And um, if generally there is the suspicion among bad guys that they're going to uh, encounter people who uh, have, have uh, pistols of uh, some kind, then uh, that that is indeed a, a deterrent to them uh, uh, doing something bad and harming others. Mm-hmm. And there have been uh, statistics that I've seen in the secular media where certain states have revised their gun control laws to allow homeowners to have firearms and Mm-hmm. When that happens, the incidence of break and enters seems to drop off quite significantly. Sure, well, it only makes sense. sense appropriately enough. And then you, you say certain states, Nicholas, and so that that brings up the very uh, key Catholic moral principle of subsidiarity. That is to say that these laws should be made and, and the matter attended to on the lowest possible administrative level, because that that community, uh, that area, that state would would know its conditions and then therefore can make prudent laws, uh, as opposed to having these these uh, you know whenever there's some sort of a crime, then our overpaid uh, legislators who have nothing to do otherwise, uh, then they they have to pass a law. There has to be a law named after the victim and to make, to make everybody feel better. We don't need a lot of federal laws, but we do need a proper control on, on the lowest local level uh, feasible. Well, uh, we, we've covered a lot of ground, and we're basically at the end of our show now. Lord, uh, Father, any concluding thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Just that I, I, would, I would like to stress again uh, the, uh, the, the liberating Catholic principle, if you will, don't talk unless you know what you're talking about. And it takes, takes some time to look it up. Know your Catholic principles. And then medit- and le- learn what, what, what prudence is. And then you know, consider it. Meditate. Read. Uh, study a little bit uh, the, the, how, how the Queen of Virtues has something to say about the, the application of these principles for alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and, and gambling. And for every other aspect of your life. So we don't argue because we've heard some propaganda on TV that appeals to us, or because such and such a movement seems good because it opposes the really bad guys. No, we're Catholics. We want to take a Catholic viewpoint. And with so many of these things, it is a question of subsidiarity, or it's a question of, of Catholic context. It's all, and it all boils down to individual responsibility, particularly in the home and the raising of children. And it's a question of... Um Again, looking for the principles and seeking to apply them. And uh, that's the message. That's our message today. Well, thank you uh, both very, very much. Uh, a great You're start welcome. to Season 4 of, uh, of uh, Restoration Radio. And uh, I'd just like to remind our listeners that you can follow and support the work of both Bishop Dolan and Father Chicada by visiting sggresources.com. They have. Um, oh, that's scgresources.org. Oh, .org. My, thanks for the correction, Father. So you can uh, go there and, among other things, uh, have live streaming uh, webcasts of the Mass every day. And, uh, Father, is your um, uh, crowdfunder for the second edition of Work of Human Hands linked on SGG Resources? Uh, it's, uh, you can find that instead on Work of Human Hands. Dot tilt.com, 
But if you go to SDG Resources, you can also and look for work of human hands. It will also send you to the crowdfunder. So we have, uh, I think, about maybe $1,200 more to go to get to our goal for it. So any help and support would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, I greatly recommend our listeners to check that out. Uh, For those that may not be aware, Work of Human Hands is currently out of print. I think the uh, Philothea Press that put out the first edition doesn't exist anymore, actually. So the crowdfunder is necessary in order to be able to do another print run of the book and get that very important work into people's hands. And, uh, of course, just a reminder, listeners, you can learn about Work of Human Hands. Uh, they're not going through the whole book verbatim, but uh, there is Work of Human Hands show is also available on the network if you want to listen to a bit more of what what's in that book. And I think that would certainly pique your interest to uh, see what you can do to get your hands on a copy of that book as well. Nicholas, since, since we're at the start of a new of a new season, could I could I just mention that perhaps if uh, any in our audience have topics such as today's uh, topics, which they would like to see uh, discussed in a clerical conversation, uh, would there be some way that they could contact uh, Restoration Radio or True Restoration and and, and make those suggestions? Because I, I would I would welcome certainly uh, topics that would be up to date and and of interest to our to our audience. Uh, yes, there absolutely is. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, listeners can. Mail uh, email us at clerical at truerestoration.org, or you can also send an email to the general email address, which is mail at truerestoration.org. But if you send it to clerical at truerestoration.org, that'll go directly to me, and then I can share it with Bishop Dolan and Father Chicada. And uh, yes, I, I'd be uh, I, I echo His Lordship's comments. We're very happy to hear what would be of interest to you, the listeners, and accommodate that as much as we can by doing shows on those topics. So uh, with that, my Lord and Father, I I know you're busy. I'll I'll let you go uh, back to your work while I wrap up with our our closing. So thank you once again for for joining me. And uh, all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. So please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. Uh, We want to remind you that Clerical Conversations is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. For the restoration, I'm Nicholas Wansbutter, and may God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. 
go to novusordowatch.org. That's novusordowatch.org.